This is an I Am Listening original podcast. There's this dilemma we have about providing more houses but not overdeveloping our area. And it is an issue. I would welcome Michael Gover's statement this weekend where he's saying they're going to encourage and incentivize more local authorities to actually make better use of brownfield sites. Uh, And that's something that we really have to do. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast, your go-to source for insightful discussions on local and national political matters. Join us as we take a deep dive into local government across the county. Find out what the key decision makers have to say, what your money is being spent on, and how the party's policies could affect how we live. Plus, don't miss our regular feature, Westminster Watch, where we dissect the latest developments and decisions shaping the political landscape in the heart of the UK's capital. Engage with us as we delve into the issues that matter to you and explore the dynamic world of politics from a Kent perspective. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast. In a week, it's revealed that a council couldn't find any innovators for its £11 million innovation centre. A huge solar farm was announced for land close to an important historic site. And an education expert says that paying for 11 plus tutoring is a complete waste of money. I'm Dan Esson, local democracy reporter covering borough and district councils in Kent. I'm joined by my colleague, news editor, Sean Delaney, who's standing in for our county council reporter, Simon Finlay, who's away this week. Hello. And Robert Boddy, who's the local democracy reporter from Medway. Hello. We'll also be speaking to KM political editor Paul Francis about the week in Westminster and special guest sitting Warden Sheppey MP Gordon Henderson, who is standing down at the next general election. First up, we're going to talk about what's happening at Medway Council. Robert, what have you been working on? So the first thing to talk about this week is the council's plans to pause work on Innovation Park Medway, which has been a long running saga. It's a business and innovation park, which was originally pitched as an idea back in 2018 by then council leader Alan Jarrett. Uh, Over £11 million has been spent so far, putting in infrastructure to support yet-to-be-constructed office spaces, but no businesses have signed up to move in when the work finally does get done. The Labour administration who took over in May last year have announced they're going to pause the scheme and use a bit of its budget to re-evaluate and decide upon the best route forward. But Labour have been in charge for the best part of a year now. Why are they only taking this decision now? Well, I had the same question myself. And from speaking with portfolio holders, uh, councillors Lauren Edwards and Simon Curry about this, they basically said it's taken about 10 months to work out exactly where the project is, what work and approach the previous administration took towards it. And after that time, they've concluded that the original plan isn't really fit for purpose anymore. So what actually are the problems of the project? And is there any chance it could end up scrapped altogether? Well, the problems that the current administration highlight is that following COVID, the way businesses operate, the importance of an office space isn't so essential anymore. They also say the previous administration took a build it and they will come approach, which meant the council will be liable for huge upfront costs that could have been wasted if spent and nobody moved in. There were supposed to be two businesses ready to sign up, but I've been told they were only willing to commit if the council spent a huge amount of money creating the buildings rather than working in partnership. They say that the project is going to go ahead. It's just a case of redesigning the plans to make them suitable. So they're keen to say the project's definitely not been cancelled. Interesting. So what else has been going on in the Medway towns? Well, back in January, the BBC Shared Data Unit did some work on the amount of debt that local councils have on their books. At the time, Medway Council wasn't included, but they uh, we got their data back, uh, which shows that 
After Kent County Council, Medway has the largest debt of any council in the county at £225 million. KCC, which covers the whole of the county, has a debt of £787 million. Canterbury has a debt of £157 million. And Ashford has £124 million in debt. There's some pretty big numbers there, but why is it so high for Medway in particular? Well, Medway is a unitary authority, so it has responsibility for upper tier services such as adult health and social care, uh, roads, which are things that uh, district councils don't really have to deal with. So that's part of the reason. Interestingly, though, despite having a higher raw number for debt, Medway actually has a lower per person debt than several smaller councils. So Canterbury has a total debt of £157 million, as I said, which is £75 million less than Medway. But their debt per person is £1,000, whereas Medway's is only £805 per person. Still, it's not an insubstantial figure, and in a recent draft budget document, Medway Council revealed they'll be paying just over £19 million a year to service their debt, which includes the debt that they've accrued for what they hope they'll get with the exceptional borrowing we talked about last week. Interesting, nineteen million pounds of debt repayment in a year is quite a lot. We hear a lot about the difficult financial positions of local councils, and recently the spotlight's been on Medway in that regard. Are things just getting worse and worse for local government? Well, it's important to recognise that debt isn't necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. What's bad is being a- unable to pay off that debt. So Medway Council said they always look at these things very, very carefully and they don't take on debt that they can't service. And this money they've borrowed is for things like the temporary accommodation scheme, the healthy living centre, large scale projects that will see a long term benefit for residents and will mean that the council saves money in the long run. The other thing to remember is that in the wider UK, Medway's debt is actually quite small. For example, Woking has a debt of almost £2 billion. Or Thurrock, which has a debt of £469 million. Across the whole of the UK, local councils as a whole have over £122 billion worth of debt. Well, I guess uh, Medway Council should probably count those blessings then. Thanks very much for explaining that, Robert. Now moving on to the county council. Sean, what's been happening? Yeah, so next month sees an important public inquiry into the future of 37 acres of land which is currently earmarked for more than 400 houses. Local people are trying to get their land village green status, arguing it is common land. They say they have had unfettered access to Bunyard's Farm, which is on the outskirts of Maidstone, for more than 20 years and there were no fences or signs to suggest the land was owned or used by anyone. This is key to gaining village green status. Campaigners have delivered 800 pages of documents supporting their claim ahead of the public inquiry which is due to take place next month. This will be heard by a barrister who specialises in planning law. But presumably that land is owned by somebody, so who are the owners and what do they have to say about this? Yeah, so the owners of the land, the Andrew Chill Will Trust, will claim otherwise, and they say that efforts were made to fence the land off and that the land was never meant to be used in the way it had been by locals. It's an interesting one, though, as it's about the only scrap of land left between Allington and Aylesford that has not been built on. Legislation came forward in 2006 which gave local people the right to declare patches of ground, sometimes quite small, as village greens, which effectively protects them from any form of future development. As I said, the inquiry will run for four days and will take place in March at County Hall, so we'll have to wait and see what happens then. Interesting. So it may be half term, but I understand education's back on the cards at County Council. Yeah, well, as we all know, Kent has a selective system of education where parents can enter their pupils into the Kent test, otherwise known as the 11 plus. Passing the 11 plus means a child can attend a grammar school and Kent has more grammar schools than just about any other county in, uh, county in the country. But it has since emerged that Labour's proposed 20% hike in VAT on independent schools has had a rather surprising consequence. Wealthy parents who would normally choose a private education for their children fear that if Sir Keir Starmer gets in, they will not be able to afford the fees. So Keir has earmarked the money raised on the VAT rise, which could be as much as £1.7 billion for investment in state schools. And 
As a result, those parents are creating a massive demand for 11 plus tutors for their kids and to get them into a grammar school instead. One firm we have spoken to has seen a massive spike in interest since Labour announced its plans. Uh, It seems that the demand for tutors has become so high in the past six months, in fact, one firm is setting pupils an entrance exam to see if they're suitable to be tutored. The field is so competitive that parents are refusing to share details of good tutors with other parents because of the race for the prize of a grammar place. So so does coaching students for the 11 plus test actually work? Well, one expert in the field, former principal primary advisor for Kent Simon Webb, is not impressed by the use of tutors. He says that a child has either got the ability to pass the 11 plus or they do not. A coach can help a children to take the test, but a tutor cannot give a child the ability to pass it, in his opinion. In short, Mr Webb says paying for a tutor is a waste of money. The tutor we spoke to said that it can offer emotional support and confidence building for the child, as well as helping in passing the 11 plus, however. So do you think it actually will put pressure on grammar school places here in Kent? Ultimately, this story is many layered. Some say that only smaller independent schools will suffer because of the VAT rise and would probably be inclined to attract children academically unsuited to a grammar education. Others say it will turn the grammars into a, a super selective schools, possibly squeezing out bright pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds. Simon Webb said if children are already in the state school, they would be automatically allowed to take the 11 plus, so the numbers would not be skewed. And he believes those well off parents are probably just keeping their options open should Labour form the next government. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Thanks very much for explaining, Sean. So, Dan, what's been happening with you this week? Um, So I spent some time looking into a controversial planning application for a massive solar farm about 160 metres from some of the most important Roman ruins in the country down at Richborough near Sandwich. Why are those ruins so important and what are people saying about them? So Richborough hosts the remains of a, a Roman fort and amphitheatre, which was the first permanent Roman settlement in Britain after the invasion by Emperor Claudian in 43 AD. Around it, there's all sorts of other architectural sites like mounds and walls um, and possibly other ruins buried in the ground, which is quite marshy and waterlogged. A local archaeologist, Dr Tony Redding, told me that there's a good chance the very first Roman road in Britain was built there and lays basically right under the planned site for the solar farm. The energy company uh, developing the solar farm, which is actually the biggest renewable energy firm in Europe called Statcraft, says that their archaeologists reckon there's no evidence of that Roman road being underneath the site. Nonetheless, there are concerns even from the county council's own archaeologists about serious damage to one of the most historically important sites in the country. And famed classicist and historian uh, Mary Beard drew some attention to it on Twitter, raising some concerns. There's currently almost 600 objections to the plans and still counting, but no decision has been made yet. That'll take another couple months. Uh, so what else have you been looking at? So I've, I've yet again been on the case of East Kent Hospitals Trust, the, the NHS body which runs um, hospitals in Canterbury, Ashford, Dover and Margate. It's one of the biggest NHS trusts in the country and it's been in a spiralling finance crisis for quite some time now. What sort of financial trouble are they in and what are they going to do about it? Well, the long and short of it is that they've massively overspent every single month for the past year or so, sometimes to the tune of £10 million a month. They're absolutely hemorrhaging cash on everything from agency staff to unexpectedly high demand for beds and A&E spaces. It's relatively normal for an NHS trust to be in debt and and run to a planned deficit, which basically they agree with NHS England that by the end of the financial year, the trust should be in X amount of debt and no more. East Kent Hospitals Trust um, was meant to have a deficit of £72 million by April. They're looking at a number close to £120 They've called in consultants from firm PwC to help explain why they just can't save cash. And they tell me that next year they plan on making at least £49 million of savings to balance the books. However, for the past six months that I've been looking at this, every single time they give an update on their financial woes, they explain that one of the main causes of their ballooning deficit is a consistent failure to make their planned savings. So when they say their plan is simply to save more next year, there's good reason to be sceptical they'll achieve what they set out to. 
Is there a topic that you would like to be discussed on the Kent Politics Podcast? Perhaps you've got a question for one of our panel, or you'd like to comment on a hot topic in local or national government. Get in touch by emailing or sending a voice note to Kent Politics Podcast at thekmgroup.co.uk. Well, that's what's been happening across Kent and Medway. Thank you very much, Robert and Sean, for your contributions. Thank you. Next up, we're speaking to our political editor, Paul Francis, about events at Westminster. What's the latest, Paul? Well, the big news this week is that the county is or will be losing one of its MPs without a vote being cast. We are, of course, talking about a Chatham and Aylesford MP, Tracy Crouch, who has announced that she's to quit as an MP and is doing so for what she described as personal and positive reasons. It was quite a surprise to hear the news that she's resigning. Why has she decided to do it? Well, in her own words, in her resignation letter, she said, we spend far too much time in our relatively short lives putting things off, but at some point you have to say to yourself, if not now, when? And for me, I've realised that when is now. I turn 50 next year and a new adventure awakes. I have no idea what it entails, and that is both exciting and scary. But what I do know is that I will forever be grateful for my time in Parliament. She will, uh, as they say, be a hard act to follow. She is one of those MPs who crossed the political divide in a way the former Mason MP Anne Whitcomb did, securing votes from those who might normally put their cross against a different party. She can also look back on a political career that took her to a role of Minister for Sports, which she loved, so maybe she thought that might be difficult to beat. So her seat is possibly a plum seat for the Conservatives, given the size of her majority, but she joins a pretty long list of MPs who are quitting preemptively ahead of the next election and saying they won't stand. Why do you think so many MPs are doing this? Well, yes, you're right. A political exodus is taking place. She'll be the 57th Tory MP to quit out of a total of 90 altogether so far. Some, of course, are simply retiring, like Gordon Henderson, who is appearing on the podcast today. But others are going for much more unsettling reasons, saying that they are targets of abuse and constant, unrelenting abuse at that. Being an MP is now a dangerous occupation. One Conservative MP has admitted to wearing a stab vest at his surgery, on the advice of police. So we are in a situation where perhaps the kind of people we want to see enter politics are being put off the idea. On the other hand, the power that comes with being an MP is something of a drug, so we can expect a lot of interest from ambitious would-be MPs. I spent Monday down in Dover talking to Labour's candidate for the seat, a guy called Mike Tapp, who is certainly not short on ambition. Mm, Mike Tapp's been the Labour prospective parliamentary candidate for Dover for quite some time now, as I recall it. But speaking of Dover, I heard you also got some news on a legal standoff between um, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs and Dover District Council on the issue of food checks um, coming in from the continent and where they should take place. Yeah, uh, this is the dispute between the two, the council and DEFRA, that focuses on the best place to carry out food hygiene checks on HGVs, bringing goods into the UK from the continent. Now, DEFRA says that the checks are to be carried out at the Sevington site off the M20 near Ashford, some 22 miles from the port, when the council asserts they can just as easily be done at a location five miles from the port. What we've heard so far is basically an exchange of legal letters between the two, with Dover saying they intend to try and take it to judicial review. Now, I've been told the council's initial letter setting out its intentions to go to court has been well and truly demolished by the government's lawyers. Now, the opposition party, the Conservatives at Dover, are up in arms over the legal tussle because of the costs involved, which goes through the checks done at whatever Port Health Authority does eventually end up doing them. In Dover's case, that is being estimated at a possible 2.8 million pound. So it's not just a case of small change. Interesting. I guess we'll have to see what happens when it ends up in court, if it ends up in court. Thanks very much, Paul, for your insights into what's going on. And we'll see you again soon.
Now we welcome our special guest, Conservative Member of Parliament for Sittingbourne and Sheppey, Gordon Henderson, who's been in Parliament since 2010 and announced plans last year to retire at the next general election. Gordon, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So why have you decided to resign ahead of the next election? Well, it's it's not a resignation. It's more a retirement because uh, in January this year, 27th of January, actually, uh, I was 76 and I will have been working full-time for 60 years since I left school at 16. I think, you know, I've done my bit for society, I've done my bit for my constituency, and uh, I've done my bit for the work in my working life. And uh, I thought, now's the time to start setting aside some time to do other things in, in my life, like visiting other countries, which is I'm keen to do, and also to spend more time writing. Interesting, yeah. I mean, 60 years is quite a long time to spend well, at the coalface. Well, 60 years, well, it's not all at the coalface. It's, it's 60 years of full-time employment, which means you've got to get up in the morning and you've got to go to work, you've got to be on time. You get don't get home till late at night, and uh, whatever you, whatever the career, and it's been, a, it's been a variety of careers during that 60 years. Uh, it hasn't all been uh, in politics. Some... I had, I had proper jobs uh, at one time, uh, including sweeping the floor in Woolworths in Chatham. So it's uh, I've had some different jobs in that time, but it, I'm conscious that I've always wanted to do the best I could in whichever job I was doing. And so it, it does mean you, you have to sometimes make sacrifices in other parts of your life to do that. Mm. So on to the politics proper. Lots of polls say that your seat sitting Bourne and Sheppey at the next general election will likely stay Conservative. You've got quite a large majority. But a, a recent poll by Electoral Calculus, which has gotten quite a lot of attention, reckons that sitting Bourne and Sheppey might go Labour. What do you reckon will happen in your seat? I, I think that uh, we will retain sitting Bourne and Sheppey, I think quite comfortably. I won't be either candidate. I, I think if... Uh, I'm not being at all big-headed about this, but I think if I was the candidate, I'd probably uh, secure a bigger majority. But we have a very, very good candidate in the city of Warnershepi. And I think that I'd not altogether... There's only one poll that matters. It's an old old saying, and it's absolutely true. The only poll that matters is a, is an election poll. And uh, I'm, I'm, I, I don't altogether trust the uh, uh, the polls that we're seeing at the moment. And I, I think that uh, things will change as we approach a general election. So Labour have been, you know, whether you trust them or not, Labour have been consistently ahead in the polls for quite some time now. And there seems to be sort of a, a growing assumption um, in the media and a lot of politicians that, that the Conservatives are going to get pretty roundly turfed out at the election this year. Um, do you have any prediction for how the general election will go? I don't do predictions. Uh, I've, um, as I say, I've been around the block a few, a few times. Look, the, the 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 general election. Not only have I stood in uh, all the general elections since two thousand and one, so twenty three years of experience in uh, general election fighting, general election, but going back to when Ted Heath was. Uh, Prime Minister, so go back a long, long way. Um, and I can remember the election that sticks in my mind is the 1992 general election when uh, when Neil Kinnock was um, became really confident that he was going to win, the Labour Party was going to win, nationally the Labour Party were miles ahead of the Conservatives. And there were three things that made me realise actually it wasn't going to go the way that the media and everyone thought it was. Uh, the first was, uh, I, I remember we had a uh, an event in uh, 
Bayview in Laysdown where we were doing delivering leaflets as a run into the election. And I remember we were waiting for a member of the team to come, a guy called Cyril Ewan, Uden, who was a, a an old guy, but he was uh, he was determined to come out and help deliver leaflets. And he said, I said, you're late, Cyril. And he said, oh, Gordon, he said, I've, I've been up to London. And do you know what? I stopped in the street by uh, an opinion survey woman and asked me how I was going to vote. And I said, what would you say? He said, I was going to vote Labour. I said, but you're a Conservative. Yeah, I know. I, I don't like saying I'm Conservative. So I, I, but even though I am a Conservative. And I thought to myself, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of other people who are stopped in the street and asked their questions give the right answer? And I suspect it's less than they think. So that was the first thing that, you know, threw me a lifeline, if you like. The second thing was we were... Uh, we arranged for John Major to come down into Sheerness Docks to come down and meet the, the workforce, which at that time had been going through a really tough period. And I remember seeing the helicopter bring John Major into the um, in, into Sheerness Docks. And he got out of the uh, helicopter and came walking towards the building where we were waiting for him. And all of the staff, whether they were the dockers or the office staff, were out there and they clapped him. And I thought, my goodness me, you know, this is middle of Sheerness and these people were actually... And I thought, those polls are wrong. We are going to do far better than they think we're going to do. And uh, lo and behold, and then when I was out and about on polling day that that that, uh, that year, uh, going around the polling stations, I was being met with smiles and, and I thought, this isn't going to go the way that people think it's going to go. And lo and behold, despite all of the predictions... We won that election. I think that's going to be a similar trend you'll see later this year when we have the general election. Interesting. Well, yeah, I guess we will see. But on to more local stuff. Yeah. I know personally from covering uh, Swale Borough Council that, that housing development and pressure on infrastructure is a really big deal on your patch. I hear about it quite a lot. Is it something that you hear much about from residents? Yeah, it's, once again, this, there's, this, is a, uh, this is a dilemma that everyone faces. I think we all recognise that we need more houses. There's no doubt about it, we do, because we need to provide youngsters with an opportunity to either rent or buy their own homes. And there aren't sufficient homes. I'm, I, every week I have people coming to me saying that they're looking for council housing or housing association house, social housing, and they can't get anywhere. They've got to move out of their private rented accommodation, they've got nowhere to go. So we need more houses, there's no doubt about it. But then when you go and talk to people and say, look, we've got to put a housing estate here or we're going to have a housing estate there, nobody wants it. And so there's this this, uh, dilemma we have about providing more houses but not over-developing our area. And it is an issue. Uh, And I think that I would welcome Michael Gove's um, statement this weekend where he's saying they're going to encourage and and incentivise more local authorities to actually make better use of brownfield sites. Uh, And that's something that we really have to do. We've done that already in in Swale under pressure, partly from me. Uh, I got the previous government to to actually provide Swale Borough Council with an extra £4 million so that they could help mitigate uh, the land in between Queenborough and Rushington for development and so there's development taking place there on Brownfield site because the Swalborough Council were able to give the developers money to to actually improve the land there for, for building. So we could do more of that and I think that's where we... And there is still Brownfield site available uh, and, and that's what we've got to do. But I think in Swell, we also have to recognise that we need even more homes than, than the Brownfield sites that we have available and um, somehow we've got to find a, a location where we can have a major development 
Sheppey Academy on the island has been troubled for quite some time and after you know, millions of pounds being invested they're finally moving towards a model which you yourself previously suggested with two separate trusts running the sites in Sheerness and Minster. Why do you think it's been a problem for so long and do you think those changes will be successful? Well, well how long have you got? Because it is a long and complex problem. It goes back to the early 1970s when uh, it was decided by the powers that be, to turn Sheppey into a comprehensive system, whereas Sittingbourne and the rest of Kent were still selective. Uh, and so uh, it, it actually told youngsters and parents on Sheppey that they were different from everybody else. Uh, and I think that was a really bad message to set up. Uh, and so they almost overnight closed the two technical schools on Sheppey uh, and uh, built one big comprehensive school and, and children, including my wife by the way, who was actually at the, girl, the, the girls tech school on Sheppey at that time uh, which was in Dan- Danley Road were, were actually moved overnight into a new comprehensive system and she says effect- effectively her education stopped uh, and that was, uh, that was the start of the problem. Uh, uh, Sheppey Comp had a terrible uh, start, it had a terrible continuation uh, and it eventually had to change and uh, and, and eventually uh, and they not only did they change the secondary education they actually changed this whole system on Sheppey into a three-tier system whereas once again on in Sittingbourne it was a two-tier system uh, and so that also became problematic and at that time we had as it happened we had three very good middle schools on Sheppey and the system was that children were leaving the first school with being a year behind they go to the middle school and the three good middle schools actually by the time they left there they were a year ahead of where they should be and they went to the comp and after a year they were two years behind again and so in when they decided they had to do something about secondary education on Sheppey they, they decided that the problem was the middle schools for some bizarre reason even though they were the best schools on the island and so they closed they changed back to a two-tier system and had uh, decided that the only way they were going to be able to afford it was by having an academy, an academy. Uh, and once again, that, that that was problematic because they decided rather than having one academy or two close by, if they needed two for the size, they were going to have one in sitting, one in uh, in Minster and one in Sheerness, which is two miles away. And I always, I said at the time that is never going to work. It's never going to. You're going to have parent. You're going to have pupils and teachers and moving between the two sites. It's never going to be effective. And it wasn't. It hasn't been. Uh, and so uh, I pressed then for two separate schools and I've been pressing for two separate schools ever since. Uh, and I, I think that the only way we're going to resolve the problem, that long standing problem, is a radical solution. Uh, because at the moment we have a situation where a thousand children a day are leaving Sheppey and going to schools in Sittingbourne. Uh, uh, now, 300 of those are going to the grammar schools. And so we're, never, we're not going to change that. But it does mean uh, uh, over 700 children a day are leaving. Uh, and we've got to make it incentivise them to stay on Sheppey so that we reduce pressure on the city mall school. So it is a, it is a complex situation and I, I, I genuinely believe that by having these two separate schools and changing the whole system, and that's what it was, this is where by the way the problem is at the moment is twofold. One problem has been resolved because uh, Kent County Council are going to be funding a special school that will be going on the Minster Academy site uh, and that's now resolved that problem. But we have another problem is that uh, we want to set up an alternative education centre so that pupils for whom mainstream secondary education isn't the suitable 
and often that is leads to disruptive pupils and, and, and other pupils. We need to get them into a, a separate centre where they can be taught uh, outside of the mainstream. Uh, and that currently is presenting a bit of a problem that I'm this week hoping to resolve. It, it, is, a, it is an ongoing problem. So you were sort of a proto-Brexiteer before Brexit was even on the cards. How would you, you know, what do you think of the current state of our relationship with the EU? Do you think Brexit's been a success or not and why? Well, I think that Brexit has been a success. It's been a success for Britain. It might not be a success for Europe, but if it, those people that say that, you know, leaving, leaving the European Union was going to be a disaster for Britain need to look at themselves in, hard in the mirror and, and, and then explain why it is that Britain's, Britain's doing so much better than countries in the EU like Germany and France and Italy are, are worse off than the UK. So it, it, to say that the UK is uh, is going to be a disaster and is still a disaster is, is total nonsense. It isn't. It has made things difficult for travellers and such like. Except that you know, if you want to want to travel to 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 France or Italy or wherever you want to return to, you're, you're going as a normal traveller now is rather than a member of the EU so it does make life difficult uh, you know I've just come back from a, uh, a holiday in, in South Africa I had to uh, as it happens I don't need didn't need a visa to get to South Africa it's one of the advantages <laughs> of going there uh, but uh, it you know you, you are treated as an, an outsider and that's the same as we are when we go to France so that's the only that is the only downside I think the upside is that we have been in a position now to be able to strike trade deals with many other countries, uh, which are going to be uh, even more successful. We actually still have our political editor, Paul France, online. Paul, do you, do you have any thoughts on that argument? Well, I'd like to ask Gordon uh, what he thinks about the activity of the weekend when farmers demonstrated uh, near Dover about these uh, food checks on lorries bringing uh, goods into the UK. That's not really a benefit, is it, when, you, when the M20s becomes clogged up? Do you think Kent's worse off than other parts of the UK? No, I don't. As think, a result of Brexit? Well, no, I don't think it's about. I don't think that's a result of Brexit at all. It's about other problems. In fact, strangely enough, I had a meeting with a farmer only today that came to my my office to buy one of my books. Uh, plug, plug. And uh, he actually uh, it was saying that you know he's 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 going through a tough time at the moment. There, he's a cereal farmer, uh, and he said, look, it's, it's, the bottom's falling out of the market because of uh, because of uh, the increase of export from the Ukraine and from Russia uh, which had which had slowed up and now they're they're increasing again and uh, so we're we're being hit not by the EU or problems from the EU we're being hit performance being hit by world world problems and he accepted it as world a world problem we are being we are being hit by EU countries, uh, others, my farmers, particularly fruit farmers, of which we have a lot in Kent and have a lot in Sitting Wood and Sheppey, um, are saying, look, one of their biggest problems is that the French are dumping fruit, dumping apples on the British market at, at, at the prices they can't compete with. But that's nothing to do with... They would be doing that whether we're in the EU or not. It's nothing to do with the EU uh, or being members of the EU. We're, we're, you know, we're still trading. Lastly, I've got three um, very quick-fire questions for you, Gordon. Firstly, if you had your time again as MP and infinite money to achieve whatever you wanted for the constituency, what would you like to do for sitting born Sheppey that you weren't able to? Oh, if, if I had the power and the money, I would have changed the secondary education on Sheppey a lot sooner than we, I've been able to. What's your proudest achievement after 14 years in Parliament? I think uh, when, I, when I look back, I think it's been the number of people that I've been able to help. Uh, you know, we, we've managed to help, on average, about 3,000 
individuals and families every single year. And I, I look upon that as a, a really good record. And lastly, what's next for you after politics? Retirement, uh, more time in South Africa and writing more, more time to write my books. Well, Gordon Henson, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's Kent Politics Podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Don't forget to also tune into KMTV on Fridays at 5pm for their politics show. We'll be back next week with more top news and analysis from our county. All best now. Thanks for listening to the Kent Politics Podcast. Don't forget to check out stories throughout the week on the politics page of Kent Online. And you can watch the Kent Politics Show with Rob Bailey on KMTV every Friday at 5pm or on demand at kmtv.co.uk. This has been an I Am Listening original podcast. For more information, head over to our website, im-listening.co.uk. 